Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As Kim Jong-un continues to provoke the U.S. and South Korea, we'll get perspective from a Korean-American about how he and others in his native country feel about the latest nuclear tests. Do they believe war is imminent? We'll find out later in the show. Diplomatic talks don't seem to phase the Kim Jong-un regime, and neither do sanctions. So what options does South Korea and the U.S. have? We'll learn about a strategy known as the decapitation strike. It's actually being discussed, but it's a strategy that history has shown doesn't make things better, like a rock. It's part of a show that was previously recorded, but we're re-airing it given President Trump's remarks to the United Nations General Assembly on Tuesday. The president told the U.N. the U.S. will, quote, totally destroys North Korea if it continues to threaten us. That's easier said than done. You can join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, to tell us more about how North Korea got to this point, I want to welcome into the studio Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Alexis, welcome to the show. Thank you. And on the phone with us is Kathy Gilsonen, senior editor at The Atlantic. Kathy, welcome to where we live. Thanks so much. Oh, I understand that the first nuclear test by North Korea was successful in 2006. And then this year, since July, there have been several subsequent tests. Explain the significance of what happened on Sunday. Well, on Sunday was the country's sixth nuclear test since 2006. And while some experts are still debating whether or not this was a thermonuclear device, What's really important is not whether it actually is a hydrogen bomb or not, but the size of the destructive force. At least um, what Japanese scientists are currently saying is that it was um, 10 times the size of what landed on Hiroshima in 1945. So we are dealing with serious capability and a real threat to the region and the globe. Uh, Kathy, uh, from your perspective at the Atlantic, what message do you think the regime is trying to send? I think the message is essentially don't mess with us and we're not afraid of you. I think that um, there had been a period there for about a week following Trump's uh, comments that he would rain fire and fury on North Korea should it threaten the United States when it looked for a second as if they were they had paused missile testing. Um, and then, of course, they did one of their most provocative missile tests yet, flying one right over Japan, and then, of course, following it up with a sixth nuclear test. To me, this indicates, listen, guys, you can, you can bluster all you want. We're still, this is important to us. We're still going to do it. It doesn't matter what you say. And you mentioned that the the message of don't mess with us, but that, again, seems to be the message that the regime and uh, has been giving for, for several years. Uh, why is it happening at this accelerated rate, Kathy? My read on that is essentially, first of all, that the, the acceleration didn't start 
with the with the Trump administration, it's they started accelerating missile tests um, under the under the mid and late Obama administration. Um, the, of course, the fifth nuclear test occurred under the Obama administration. I think partly um, this is due just to the fact that they can. Their capabilities have gotten better, and so they want to test them out and flex their muscles. And I think partly it may, in fact, I mean, there's all of this. The omni caveat when talking about North Korea is that there is a lot of projection and speculation about what's actually going on there. We don't have good intelligence on their leadership and their decision making. Um, but it strikes me as reasonable that, you know, given given the tenor of the threats being leveled at North Korea and given what most analysts say is um, is the at least partly defensive um, intent of this program that North Korea feels threatened by by the United States, as it always has. Perhaps it feels more threatened now um, and, and wants to deter any kind of uh, preemptive attack. Um, Alexis Dudden, again, from UConn, a professor of history. She's in a studio with me here on where we live as we talk about the, the most recent actions by North Korea. Uh, uh, Kathy mentioned under the Obama administration, but can we go back a little bit further and get some context uh, from uh, different presidential administrations and how they've responded to North Korea? Sure. I mean, we can we can go all the way back to the armistice in 1953. But I think one thing um, that is important to consider is what happened in the in following 1989, following the collapse of the former Soviet Union. Um, Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader, and his son, Kim Jong-il, looked to uh, former satellite states of the Soviet Union, particularly Romania. When the Ceausescus were executed uh, in 1989, there is strong indication that Kim Il-sung got really nervous that this could actually happen. And so there was a determination to secure uh, not just legitimacy, which has always been the core feature of the DPRK, um, but also really to secure the survival of his family. And so in that mix, he figured out that one of the key ways to do this was to an accelerate a nuclear weapons program, particularly plutonium program, which uh, became clear during the 1990s was underway. And that's when things such as the Clinton administration's overtures to uh, agreed frameworks, et cetera, et cetera, moved forward. Then we hit 2002. We hit uh, the axis of evil speech. And the axis of evil speech, uh, when uh, George Bush included North Korea with Iran and Iraq, made clear to the North Korean leadership that it was a target again of the United States. And so the uh, North, Korea's, North Korea broke the agreed framework um, and made clear by 2003 that it was restarting its uh, enrichment programs. And at that juncture, uh, we had an effort called the Six-Party Talks. The Six-Party Talks involved China, North, South Korea, Japan, Russia, and the United States. These worked throughout the second Bush administration, Bush Jr., um, and um, continued until 2009, during which time the North did conduct its initial nuclear test to demonstrate that, in fact, it did have capability. So, in fact, we've had this sort of push-pull, show us that you've got weapons, negotiate, show us you've got weapons. But I totally agree with Kathy that what's been going on recently is not so much um, an accelerated rate. It's just they've gotten a lot better. So gone are the days of 1994 when we had inspectors from the IAEA. I mean, Hans Blix was on 
everybody's tongue. Um, gone are the days in which we are looking at the same images of spent fuel rods and wondering what to do with them to looking at serious weapons capability because they have just continued to get better. So, you know, here we are now. We know they mean business. We know they have technological advancement. And now we need a serious plan to deal with this. Uh, speaking of, of a plan and response, uh, Kathy from uh, the Atlantic, can we talk about who we know that North Korea is very good at isolating itself, but who are its allies? And can we talk about China's role in all of this? Sure. Uh, North Korea doesn't have very many allies. It has a, you know, it has a, a close neighbor and sometime partner in China, which is its which is its biggest trading partner currently. And of course, the Trump administration's position has been China needs to needs to really step up and fix this. You have seen China in recent, uh, you know, in response to recent missile tests. There's there's some indication that that China is starting to lose some patience with with its neighbor. And in fact, you could look at some of these missile tests as provocations directed at China specifically as well. These, these things have put Xi Jinping in a very awkward position. And, and in fact, the latest nuclear test was timed for, um, or might not have been timed for, but coincided with a summit that she was hosting um, and, and completely derailed this, um, this, this image he was trying to create of being, you know, this solid leader capable of, um, capable of directing the region in certain ways. So I think that, um, and, and it was notable following a previous missile test, not to be confused with a nuclear test, but following a previous missile test that China did in fact sign on along with Russia to a new tougher round of United Nations security. Security Council sanctions, um, when in previous iterations you might have expected them to veto it. So China has leverage. China is using some of it. China is, in response to some of these missile tests, actually conducting missile defense tests of its own and conducting exercises near North Korea. Um, but it remains the case that, you know, it, there's only so much influence China can wield if. Kim Jong-un is willing, as the Russians say, to let his people eat grass in order to retain this capability. I think um, Alexis points to the, the Kim Il-sung's fear of what happening that Ceausescu is happening to him. I think Kim Jong-un looks at recent history and sees what happens to Muammar Gaddafi, sees what happens to Saddam Hussein. These were leaders that gave up their nuclear programs um, and, and ended up dead. So he doesn't want to see that happen to him. A uh, call from now from uh, Stephen, who's calling from Wyndham. Stephen, you're on the show. Hi, you know, I'm just reading in today's Global Times, which is a Chinese-English language paper, and uh, it's kind of like a hand of the Communist Party over there, but it says uh, Xi is adamant um, at preserving international nuclear non-proliferation regime mm. and maintaining peace, peace on the peninsula. You know, I, I I think that's kind of a wish. If anything, they might, you know, I know the Chinese are worried about a collapse North Korea, you know, uh, refugees pouring across the border. Yeah, but there's got to be, you know, I don't see any end game with uh, Kim Jong-un. He's, he's, he's kind of like a little bit nuts. I mean, I read somewhere he's killed 72 even his uncle, and I think aunt and top regime uh, in the last, you know, few years. Is there any way we could work with China to unwind this without a com complete collapse of, say, the yeah. North Korean army, which we found out in Iraq was a 
really bad mistake. Is there any way we could unwind Kim Jong-un and send him packing somewhere? Good question, Stephen. I'll have uh, Alexa, Alexis Dudden respond. Yes. I mean, I think you've put your, your finger on many of the important issues. Particularly, we do not want a collapse of North Korea, either in any shape or form, but especially the collapse of the military. Um, we have to work with China. And that's where the mixed messages coming out of Washington are really difficult to parse right now. For example, how we have to... Any nation can't expect another nation just to do it a favor, especially the other megapower on the planet is not going to act in the United States' interests. It's going to act in China's interests. I'm glad you're reading the Global Times. They were interesting the other day in an article concerning whether any fallout from the test had gone to China. It hadn't. So at the moment, it's not in China's interest to be concerned. But of course they're concerned. As you point out, Xi Jinping does not want a destabilized neighbor. He does not want an out-of-control regime on his border. So how do we work with China? Well, we do things such as not saying we're going to end trade with China if they don't help. Because then, you know, how is China supposed to respond? Because that's just a non-starter if you're the Chinese leader hearing that from the leader of the United States. Um, and so we have got to come up with creative ways. Demanding that China stop all oil uh, to, to North Korea is also a problem because as serious studies have shown, North Korea um, can tighten its use of uh, oil by 40% for the military and do just fine. So the people who are going to suffer from demanding that China cut off oil are the farmers that need it for their tractors, are the people who drive trucks. So we've really got to work creatively with China and not just make this a system of American demands that China do what we say, because China is far too powerful these days to do what the United States says. On top of which, we need to think how China behaves in the region. And I was really glad that Kathy pointed out um, how this test on September 3rd came at a time to make uh, China look bad. Mm -hmm. This wasn't so much a test aimed at the United States and Japan, which many of them often are, but this was one to make China appear as if it wasn't always running the show regionally. And so we need to figure out a way with China that assures China that the United States does not seek the collapse of North Korea because in such a scenario, that would bring American troops to the border with China. So we need to, and we need to make clear to China that the United States does not seek to occupy the entire Korean Peninsula, for starters. Um, but I'm sure Kathy has something to add, too. And, and Kathy, Alexis mentioned uh, mixed messages coming from Washington. She just mentioned this idea of an oil ban. I think that's being drafted in a U.S. Resolu resolution to the U.N. Um, and I'm just curious about just historically, whenever these tests have happened, they, the U.S. and its allies have talked about or have tried to tighten sanctions. But those don't seem really effective. The Kim regime is uh, very wealthy while the people of North Korea are starving. Can we talk about the, the history of the sanctions? Right. There, there have been several rounds of sanctions passed, both international and, and bilateral on the U.S. part. And the, the key thing to keep in mind there is, one, you know, sanctions as a policy tool have a, have a patchy record of forcing concessions. In, in recent history, it's argued that sanctions are what ultimately brought Iran to the negotiating table uh, to suspend parts of its nuclear program. However, 
there there are always other factors involved and and of course if you if you get back to the the key point that Kim views his nuclear program as existential i just don't see any way that any kind of economic pressure is going to force him to give it up if he thinks his survival is dependent on it um secondly i think North Korea has a lot of practice with sanctions and it has a lot of practice with economic hardship and has, as a regime, has survived decades past, you know, experts' predictions of um, of how long it was going to last when this whole thing started. So North Korea knows how to cheat sanctions. It knows how to accelerate its missile program, even under some of the harshest international sanctions. It, it can use the black market. It can use, um, it, it can break international law. Um, these these things aren't perfect instruments. Um, an entire oil embargo would hurt, but that, of course, also depends on enforcement. And so a, it's very unlikely to pass anyway. China and Russia have vowed mm-hmm. that they would veto any such resolution. Um, but B, even if it does pass, the question is always, okay, well, who's going to enforce it? What's going to happen if if oil trade does continue um, over the Chinese border um, as it as it likely would? You know, then then you're sort of back to square one, and you might as well have not passed the ban in the first place. I want to fit in one more call, David from Woodbury. Uh, David, uh, quickly before we head to break. Oh, hello, folks, everybody. I I strongly believe that, there, well, first, the there, war is unthinkable. I believe there will not be a war. Kim Jong-un has his capability, so basically he won't be attacked and messed with. He, he knows he can't use them because there wouldn't be no more North Korea. I, I, again, war is just unthinkable. I don't, I don't think it will happen. And, I, and well, I think that's that's about it. All, all right, all Dave, the best, everybody. David, thank you for your comment. I wanted to go back to uh, Kathy Gilson, and senior editor at the Atlantic, and also have Alexis respond to this as well. Um, you know, David made a good point that North Korea really doesn't want war. If they were to strike a U.S. city, the U.S. could an- annihilate the nation and the Kim regime wants to um, stay right where it right, right where it is. Uh, but in terms of uh, could the possibility of Kim Jong-un, uh, Kathy, miscalculating uh, whether it's a, a tweet from the President Trump or words from Nikki Haley that says that the country is begging for war. Um, I'm just curious about that possibility. Right. This is this is my main concern. I think all sides are very aware of the high excruciatingly high costs that another war on the Korean Peninsula would entail. Um, you know, and, and don't forget, nuclear weapons aside, North Korea has incredible conventional capabilities and lots and lots of artillery pieces aimed at Seoul um, and, and could cause massive destruction within within minutes if um, if it felt it was under attack. So it's, you know, it's been prepping for this. There's There's no peace agreement on the Korean Peninsula, They're, the two countries are still technically in a state of war. Um, North Korea has been ready for war. Um, it, it knows what to do. Um, and all sides acknowledge that um, this would be catastrophic for all parties involved. What So as a student of the Cold War, I 
Um, you know, I believe in deterrence. I believe it's a very powerful feeling. I believe that, that the very catastrophe that war would entail can prevent it in, in many scenarios. But to your point about miscalculation, this is precisely the thing that I worry about um, when we're talking about things like fire and fury, when we have two when we have Donald Trump on the one hand blustering and, and making threats and Kim Jong-un on the other hand blustering and making threats and you cannot sort out the the real intentions from the bluster, um, to me the room for miscalculation expands and most analysts agree that the one thing that would cause Kim Jong-un to stage a suicidal first strike either on the United States or its allies is a belief that a preemptive first strike is coming from, from the United States or its allies. So to the extent that some of this rhetoric is convincing Kim that that's the case, I think it does raise the chances of an accidental conflict. Kathy Gilson, and uh, senior editor at The Atlantic, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut, will stay with us as we talk more about North Korea and what its latest nuclear test means. How should the U.S. and its allies respond? One strategy being floated, the decapitation strike. We'll learn what that is and why it may not be the best approach. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kim Jong-un is obsessed with showing dominance. Traditionally, sanctions have been placed on North Korea, but in terms of military options, what strategies could the U.S. and its allies take? There's something called the decapitation strike. Adam Ronsley wrote about it recently in Foreign Policy magazine. He's the national security reporter who authors the FP's situation report with Paul McLeary. Uh, Adam joins us by phone. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, first off, let's t- talk a little bit about decapitation strike and the history of how it's been used. Yeah, well, I guess the shortest description of a decapitation strike is that you know it's an attack on an enemy's most senior leadership, um, and it's designed to sow confusion, indecision, and hopefully capitulation among its forces. Um, the most recent example we can uh, point to would be 2003 in Iraq. In the opening stages of the Iraq War, the U.S. tried to decapitate um, Saddam Hussein's Iraq with uh, cruise missile and bomb strikes on door farms. Uh, the intelligence ultimately proved incorrect, and Saddam Hussein was not at that location, and it wouldn't be uh, quite a while until uh, we caught him. Um, but the goal, particularly in totalitarian or dictatorial societies like Iraq and North Korea, where uh, military power is concentrated at the very top and the use of force is tightly controlled because these societies don't necessarily trust their military. The goal is that in a very hierarchical society, you can really disrupt the command and control by striking these uh, uh, senior leadership targets like Kim Jong-un or his senior general so that in the event you know, faced with making a military decision, they'll hesitate, and that will give your forces time to, um, you know, service targets and and, um, uh, prevail. Now, you go on to write that this is not necessarily an easy thing to do with North Korea, given uh, the circle that surrounds him, uh, Kim Jong-un. Can you talk about uh, just even over the last half century, how the Kim regime, from his grandfather to his father, um, how they've been able to stay in power because of that tight circle and the, the amount of surveillance on the very North Koreans that are there to protect them? Yeah, I mean, you don't get to be a three-generation dynasty of North Korea without having some pretty tough bodyguards. Um, 
and the Kim family has designed the entire North, uh, North Korean security apparatus for their own personal protection. And what they've done is they've created multiple overlapping rings of protection. Starting at the very core, you have bodyguards that are handpicked, whose families are scrubbed to make sure they don't have any loyalty to any other um, you know, North Korean elites. Um, and surround, you know, in, in concentric rings, sort of like a secret service, you have bodyguards following the Kims everywhere they go, protecting their villas, protecting their families, protecting, you know, their inner circle. Um, for the capital itself, where the Kim family lives in Pyongyang, you have the Pyongyang uh, Defense Corps and the Pyongyang Air Defense Corps, which is a unit specifically um, intended to defend the city um, in the event of an invasion or in the event of a coup attempt. Uh, around that, you have the um, Third uh, Army Corps, uh, which protects the sort of western flanks and the approaches from Nampo up to uh, Pyongyang. And, um, you know, sort of circulating through that, you have a, a whole alphabet soup of um, intelligence agencies who eavesdrop on the military to ensure their loyalty, who eavesdrop on uh, senior North Korean politicians to ensure their loyalty, uh, who eavesdrop uh, and spy and hunt for coup plots among ordinary, everyday North Koreans. So you have this very, very elaborate um, uh, security apparatus that's designed to protect them. Uh, and many people have tried in the past to uh, uh, take a poke at the Kims, and they've never really succeeded, both within and without. Uh, I wanted to bring in the conversation again, Alexis uh, Dudden, again, a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Can we talk a little bit about um, the new uh, leadership in South Korea? Um, because, again, this decapitation strike has been mentioned by the South Korean government. Can we talk a little bit about uh, what this new president, uh, Moon Jae-in, where he's coming from his perspective on how to handle North Korea? Yes, thank you. Uh, Moon Jae-in is the most legitimate president South Korea has ever had since 1948 in its history insofar as he came into power this spring as the result of uh, a peaceful overthrow of a democratically elected president who is currently in jail. So he came in and very much uh, has made public his desire to negotiate with North Korea but different from Donald Trump's tweet the other day, he is not an appeaser. He is not weak on North Korea. He is simply pragmatic in knowing that a military option is not an option as president of South Korea. His people will suffer as much as North Koreans in terms of sheer destruction. That said, at the same time, uh, in recent months, there's been publicity about South Korea's own uh, decapitation strategies, uh, both those being done in conjunction with U.S. forces and those on its own. So making it very clear that South Korea is not taking North Korean provocations lightly because they see it as an existential threat to all Koreans, not simply half and half. Mm -hmm. And I think that also, you know, it really gets at how Moon Jae-in is envisioning a future, which is something that maybe we should also consider. For so long, uh, there's been this notion that unification would return the peninsula to sort of an irredentist shape that we will always see in the peninsula, that there's going to be one country. And that prevailed for a long time. And in fact, both countries, both North and South, have in their constitutions a sort of denial of existence of the other half. 
At the same time, um, South Korea is currently not delegit, not seeking the delegitimization of North Korea. In fact, Moon Jae-in has said, we are not seeking to overthrow the regime. We simply have to talk because if we don't talk, we're going to let this spiral out of our hands. And in that sense, Moon Jae-in is referring to a broader awareness among Koreans that if South Korea is not an equal in this conversation, this is going to be a war guided by the United States and shaped by foreign powers. This is where we live today. We're talking about uh, recent actions uh, by North Korea, the sixth launch of, of a nuclear, uh, a sixth launch of a nuclear test this past Sunday. In studio with me, Alexis Dudden, professor of history at UConn. On the phone, Adam Ronsley, national security reporter who authors uh, FP's uh, situation report with Paul McLeary, who recently wrote about uh, one uh, strategy that um, has been floated, um, has happened in history in the past, and we've seen some of the fallout with that, including in Iraq, uh, and that's called the decapitation strike. I wanted to go back to Adam. Um, you lay out very, uh, very thoroughly about uh, this uh, strategy and, and how it would be difficult uh, to do again. But then what what would likely happen in the next few days uh, if, say, another test were done, Adam? Um, you know, I don't think the U.S. has a lot of great options to another test. Um, uh, we've certainly heard the fire and fury comments. Um, but uh you know at the end of the day uh, our options are pretty constrained um the north koreans aren't going to test uh, a missile uh in a way that would allow the us to easily shoot it down we saw that uh with the recent test of the missile over hokkaido uh i think you know the the response is probably going to be more of the same um just you know another round at the uh, un security council asking for more sanctions hoping likely in vain that the Chinese will put more pressure on. Uh, but I don't think, you know, uh, I don't think there's really a, a solution to this that, that's, that is likely to happen politically. Alexis. Yes, I, I completely agree with Adam. And I mean, one thing that is also necessary to consider is the role of Japan in this. Um, because there is – this falls uh, – North Korea's provocations at the moment coincide with a leadership in Japan that is seeking to revise Japan's military posture in the world, seeking to overturn the longstanding Article 9 uh, prescription against Japan's waging war abroad. Legal already for Japan is to defend Japanese uh, borders. Uh, also – uh, Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Security Agreement uh, obligates American troops to come to Japan's defense if Japanese territory is attacked. I completely agree there is no easy military uh, option for the United States, but increasingly discussed in Japanese parliament is whether or not Japan can shoot down with its patriot systems uh, shoot down a North Korean missile flying over its territorial airspace, territorial waters, etc. And so w there is talk uh, of a missile launch again, but the fact that it is now routinely discussed in Japan coinc coinciding with Japanese uh, cities now doing disaster drills, uh, civil defense kind of drills to really get the populace worked up in a way that, you know, we haven't seen since duck and cover drills in the United States in the 1950s. But this kind of broader social consciousness that's taking place in Japan may make it the Japanese that do the dirty work. And that would have enormous ramifications throughout Asia.
with how China responds. China, South Korea, Russia. I mean, nobody <laughs> wants the Japanese to be shooting missiles right now. I wanted to take a call, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. MGS is calling. Uh, MGS, go ahead. Uh, yes, Lucy, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just have a couple of comments. The first one is we definitely should watch our words. Uh, we use a lot a lot of words like Hillary Clinton used, we will obliterate uh, Iran, and we just keep using the word we will annihilate uh, North Korea. I mean, that's not a good way to talk about any nations. Uh, any country, the history shows any country we attack, they are still here, like Japan is still here. <clears throat> After the um, uh, nuclear attack, Afghanistan is there, Iraq is there, uh, Libya is there, all these countries are there. So we should be very careful and move away from the war and annihilating or destroying the other, other regions and other countries. Well, thank second, oh, Go ahead. A second, a second comment I have that it should be more like the United Nations, not the United States. I mean, every time we talk about the nuclear weapons, Iran is trying to get the nuclear weapons. Uh, it's the United States versus Iran, then the United States versus Iraq, the United States versus Libya. So we should strengthen more and more the United Nations and the way we can do that by being more just, because uh, there's no justice in the United Nations. That's why people don't find any, uh, they don't go to the United Nations, and it becomes the United States' responsibility. Thank you for your comments. Alexis. Yes, I, I completely agree that words matter, and they matter particularly in, in this current situation, annihilation, obliteration, just smacks of what uh, Harry Truman was saying in the summer of 1945 on the eve of, of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, bombs, in which Truman said that the United States would have a reign of ruin on Japan, the likes of which the world had never seen before, which then Donald Trump quoted in his Fire and Fury uh, announcement. And at the same time, it's also important to bear in mind that the United States in 1950 to 53 did perpetrate an extermination campaign against North Korea um, to the extent that more tonnage of destructive uh, TNT and napalm was dropped on North Korea than in, in that war than during the sum total of the Second World War in the Asia-Pacific theater. To, and why does this matter now in terms of perceptions from North Koreans is, is that every North Korean since then has been educated in that firebombing campaign to know with no uncertain terms that the United States is enemy number one, which circles back to Adam's really important comments about the difficulty of a decapitation strategy against North Korea, because even if you take out the leadership, Every North Korean has been raised to hate the United States. So it's not just a question of taking out the leadership. Again, here's where words matter. We shouldn't even be talking about this in some respects. We should talk, be talking about how to bring North Korea into the community of nations. But when this rhetoric of decapitation, annihilation, obliteration is circulated, it certainly anneals a leadership in the targeted country to dig in its heels. and. Furthermore, it gives that leadership the ability to tell its people, look, we are still targets. And we have, in the case of North Korea, been the target of such an extermination campaign before. So let's double down and remember that history and use it to strengthen ourselves now, even if we have to eat grass. Adam Ronsley from Foreign Policy, you write about that in your recent piece about the uh, the chaos that would be left uh, in North Korea if uh, Kim Jong-un were to be assassinated. 
Yeah, and, and that's the problem is that even in the very unlikely event that you can hit Kim Jong-un, that you've got you know perfect intelligence on where he is and that whatever strike uh, you choose manages to be successful, it's not immediately clear that everybody just packs it up and calls it a day uh, after that happens. Certainly that would cause a lot of disruption and confusion in the ranks, um, and in the, you know, in, in the event of any major conflict with the United States and North Korea, uh, the United States would ultimately prevail at tremendous human cost, um, but it would prevail. Um, but it's not clear that the fighting necessarily stops. North Korea's army is very, very large. Um, it has lots of weapons, um, so there's plenty of fuel for the conflict to continue. The Korean People's Army may not continue fighting in a conventional sense, in the sense that you see you know, large tank formations or massed artillery fires, but the potential for an insurgency to continue um, is certainly there. And let's not forget that um, China's probably not going to sit by passively uh, in the event that there's a throwdown between the United States and North Korea. They have their own interests to consider. Uh, they're very concerned about refugees. They're also very concerned about uh, nuclear weapons uh, uh, being loose in the event of a conflict. You have not just a large conventional uh, arms arsenal in North Korea, but you have nuclear weapons. You have reportedly biological and chemical weapons. And so the Chinese are likely, as many people believe, to try and cross the border into North Korea and create sort of a, a rump buffer state between uh, whatever fighting is happening between the U.S. and North Korea, uh, so that um, you know refugees don't completely mass across uh, the Chinese border and start to create problems internally there. So you know, if you look at all those ingredients, you have uh, you know an army uh, that and a, and a people that have been indoctrinated to hate the United States, to view them as you know just inherently hostile uh, to their interests. Uh, you have plenty of weapons, uh, conventional and unconventional, and you have a, a rival power uh, sitting anxiously on the border. That's, that's a pretty combustible mix. Uh, and it's not necessarily clear that uh, when Kim Jong-un dies that the fighting stops. Uh, Lou is calling from New Haven. Lou, you're on the show. Hey, thanks for taking my call this morning. Um, so... Uh, just a little bit about myself, first of all. I have a uh, sociology uh, background, and I'm a peace activist. I just wanted to make, I, I guess, an observation, hopefully to give people a little bit of perspective on this whole situation, because all things considered, uh, not that much, if you really look at the historical record, has changed since the end of the Korean War, um, uh, with the exception of the recent threats. But I think a lot of people do that as, a reaction to some of the hostility that has been displayed on the part of the U.S. and, and other nations. And so I, I just think that with everything that's going on in the world, we need to remind ourselves, first of all, that we are not the world police. Um, agree with them or disagree with them in their form of government or whatever it may be, the North Koreans have just as much of a right to defend themselves as any other sovereign nation. And that's, I think, what they're doing right now. Uh, I think we have enough problems with the state of our own democracy here in the U.S. That, uh, to start going around getting involved uh, in, in military action against other nations. We need a diplomatic solution to this whole problem. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's really what it comes down to. Lou, thank you for your comment. Alexis. 
Lou, I, I applaud your, your sentiments, and I completely agree. There is one thing that has changed since the end of the Korean War, and that is the really radical difference in uh, economic trajectories of North and South Korea. In the early 1960s, uh, American diplomats disparaged the South Korean economy as the po- as worse than the poorest of African states. And really what's happened, uh, you know, by the... In the early 1970s, you could actually consider a fairly equal standard of living in North and South Korea. By the time both countries had sort of gotten themselves out of the rubble of a devastating civil war. But today, South Korea's economy is 45 times larger than North Korea's. And so what we've got is a very different worldview among the so-called average Korean, in which um, both now consider themselves from separate places. Um, And yet the South Koreans, especially in their 20s and 30s, view the notion of unification very, very differently from 60 and 70 year olds. They see more of a sort of awareness that they've got relatives in the North, that they share a common history. But they personally, 20 and 30 year olds, do not want to be financially burdened by their northern brethren. How to move forward is a sort of political uh, delicate dance, if you will. And that's where the new president of South Korea is really quite interesting in inviting the North Koreans to the Winter Olympics, so forth and so on. But again, a peaceful diplomatic solution is the only solution, but one that considers what Koreans want. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to thank Adam Ronsley, national security reporter who authors Foreign Policy's Situation Report with Paul McLeary. We'll tweet out a link to his excellent article, How Not to Kill Kim Jong-un. Adam, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. UConn professor of history Alexis Dudden is here as we talk about the latest actions by North Korea. Coming up, we get perspective from a Korean-American on how South Korea and its people are weighing the actions of its volatile neighbor. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, within the shadow of P.T. Barnum lies another story of Bridgeport wealth, the story of 19th century sisters Mary and Eliza Freeman. On the next Where We Live, we'll explore their legacy and talk about their connection to Bridgeport's historic Little Liberia community. That's Friday. Today, we're taking a look at the situation involving North Korea. In studio with me, Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. And joining the conversation now is uh, Kangwon Wayne Lee, president of the Korean American University Professors Association, uh, a professor at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, professor Lee, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. It's I'm- my pleasure to participate in your program. I understand that you came to the U.S. several decades ago. You have family still in South Korea. Tell us how you look at the most recent uh, news events, and are South Koreans fearful? Yeah, uh, as you see, it's not present situation. Uh, and also, since my brother and sisters are still in Korea, uh, it's a uh, scary a little bit, but uh, we hope there'll be, you know, some sort of uh, peaceful solution among all uh, interest parties. Uh, and that has been the hope for, for many years. Uh, does this uh, latest, uh, these latest events, does it feel different to you now? 
Oh, yeah, definitely, because the magnitude is different. <laughs> like the uh, last 60 years since the Korean War, mm-hmm. uh, the confrontation was not that, you know, like uh, at this ma- level of the magnitude. After the uh, Kim Jong-un uh, did so many uh, nuclear uh, uh, testing and all those things. So, yeah, the situation is different than uh, uh, past uh, several decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier, uh, we heard from Alexis Dudden from Yukon, who talked about uh, the sentiments that South Koreans have for their neighbors in North Korea. Uh, we understand more than 30,000 North Korean refugees live in South Korea. Can you talk about um, you know, your concerns when we hear about this, uh, this rhetoric uh, ramping up? ramping up uh, these nuclear tests that are happening more frequently. Uh, you know, are you worried? Is a, a potential strike um, from North Korea to Seoul? Is that something that really concerns you? Yeah, the, uh, of course I'm concerning. And then, however, you know, it's depending on how the uh, United States and China government will do. Uh, if there'll be no a uh, peaceful dialogue uh, or a solution uh, that could happen. So, you know, I'm concerned about that uh, something will happen if uh, there will be no uh, peaceful solution soon. Alexis Dudden, we talked a little bit about ramifications, um, how China will react, um, you know, Russia's kind of say, staying out of it. Um, what are some possible scenarios because this this situation is very fluid? (laughs) Well, there's no middle ground. Uh, Possible scenarios include uh, a nuclear war that Jim Mattis, uh, among others, say would be the worst kind of fighting any of us would ever see in our lifetimes. Very different from the Middle East. Any war that begins, excuse me, begins nuclear in Northeast Asia would be all nuclear all the time. And that is something we have just no imagination for, um, and nor should we. We should imagine the alternative, which is to figure out a creative, peaceful solution that begins uh, first and foremost by recognizing that the North Koreans have sought since 1953 an end to the armistice treaty that it has with the United States and the discussion of a peace treaty. Is that appeasement to North Korea? No. It's a recognition that North Korea has a desire to end hostilities in its country. How we go about doing that will require dispatch of serious level diplomats. Um, We need to think creatively immediately in Washington. Excuse me. We also understand that uh, Trump uh, signed support for South Korea and uh, Japan to acquire more advanced American weapons. What kind of weapons are we talking about, Alexis? Um, South Korea now has the capability to extend its weaponry uh, greater distances. It has greater tonnage that's been permitted. Japan will be seeking the same uh, guarantees as well. So in this, in essence, it's become an arms sales deal and ratcheting up the militarization and potential nuclear arms race in Northeast Asia at a time when the alternative is there. The alternative being um, to have negotiations that would include, as the six-party talks did before, bring North Korea, South Korea, Japan, China, and Russia to the table 
preferably outside of North Korea. The problem is we've given Kim Jong-un pretty much the stronger hand by forcing him to demonstrate what he's got. So we may all have to go to Pyongyang, which gives him a little more legitimacy, which is not in our interests. But then we have to work with the North Korean people to help them bring about a different kind of future for North Korea. I want to go back to Professor Kangwon Wayne Lee, again, a Korean-American who's lived uh, in the United States for several decades now. Uh, Professor Lee, what is your uh, reaction to uh, some of uh, President Trump's tweets? And what kind of feeling do you have about the new South Korean president? Well, I, I think the, it's not my only view. I think most people think the uh, we hope the uh, President Trump will be more professional. <laughs> so so that, uh, that, having said that, I think the uh, South Korean President Moon, he is, narratively uh, speaking, more uh, professional. And then I think uh, he is looking for a peaceful dialogue solution first. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, he hopes that U.S. government work with uh, China and or Russian government uh, for North Korea to stop their nuclear program and uh, come to the table of the dialogue somehow. However, if uh, it does not work, I think the uh, South Korea should have effective defense system like uh, Patriot and Saad or need to have a comparable nuclear program and uh, capability to deter North Korea's aggression. So I'm thinking about uh, two different approaches. One will be peaceful approach. The other one is a practical approach to uh, deter the uh, North Korean or Kim Jong-un's aggression. Well, I want to thank uh, Kangwon Wayne Lee for joining us, president of the Korean American University Professors Association. Thank you for your time, Professor Lee. Oh, it's my pleasure. And Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Uh, we've talked about uh, the sheer number of people who live in Seoul, including uh, thousands of Americans and their families who are stationed there uh, with the U.S. military. But I want to thank Alexis Dudden for your time as well. Thank you. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown, as well as our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Thank you for your help today on today's show. And special thanks to uh, WNPR producer, Betsy Kaplan. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. As always, thanks for listening.